While you're finding Romans chapter 10, I need to do a super brief recap so that everybody knows what we're talking about um, in Romans chapter 10. We've been in Romans for like 15 years now, so a super brief recap is hard. But um, basically, the Apostle Paul, is, he has written a letter to the Christians in Rome. The church in Rome, the Christians in Rome, includes a, a big diversity of people who have come to Christ, including two major groups, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians had the traditions, the heritage, they had historically been known as God's chosen people. Gentile Christians were the other guys, and they came in from all kinds of pagan practices, and uh, it was sort of a culture clash as they came together. So Paul is writing into this situation, and in our most recent text that we've been through, Romans chapter 9, which was difficult, but uh, we studied through it really well, and I was really impressed with you guys for hanging with me. Um, Paul's addressing the question of, it, it didn't make sense at first glance that all of God's chosen people, not all, many of God's chosen people rejected his Messiah, Jesus. And yet many of these outsiders embraced him. So Paul was wrestling with the theological implications of this. And through chapter 9, he looked at that problem mainly from God's perspective. And we talked about how it was always God's plan. There was a true Israel within Israel. I'm not going to go back through all that right now. Um, I'm telling you all that because now, once we have now, are now entering chapter 10, he's still addressing the same question, but more from the perspective of the people. So he's been addressing it, what was God thinking with this? Is God in control or is he impotent and this is out of his hands? And his answer was, God is very much in control. Now he's going to look at Israel themselves. Why did they miss it? And this is really important for us because... If the people of Israel could miss it, we can miss it. If anybody should have gotten it regarding Jesus, it was the people of Israel. Yet many, many, many of them did not. So it's good for us to learn the lessons that they had to learn the hard way because we could be missing it. So we're going to read the first four verses of Romans chapter 10. And if you're able... I'll ask you to stand as an expression of honor as we read God's word. No other book like this. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, meaning Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, please help us to understand your word now and to receive it and to respond to it rightly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So we're going to look at these two reasons that Paul gives that the people, many of the people of Israel missed Jesus. They, they didn't get the point of Jesus, and therefore they missed salvation. The first reason is what I've, I'll label ignorant zeal. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
They need to be saved. They're in danger of damnation. And the first reason why they're in this danger, in verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, a passion for God, an enthusiasm for God, but not according to knowledge. So the first reason they missed it, and the first danger I want us to look at in our lives, is an ignorant and uninformed passion for God. I know a story of a young lady who had the opportunity to play basketball in front of her entire high school in the gym. And she went out to play. It's it's nerve-wracking to play basketball in front of your entire class in high school. She went out onto the court. She got the ball. She broke away. She headed toward the goal. It was like no one was even trying to defend her. And the crowd was yelling. She couldn't tell what the crowd was yelling, but they were definitely into it. And she shot it when she got to the goal, and she scored. It went in. And then she realized that her fast break was in the wrong direction, and she scored on the wrong goal. See, enthusiasm is really, really good, but only if it's directed in the right direction. Otherwise, it makes us all look stupid. That's the sermon in a a sentence. (laughs) You see, the, the Israelites had a very rich lifestyle of God stuff. They had daily and weekly and monthly and annual traditions and rituals and festivals and ceremonies all oriented toward God. They had the rules, they had the law, they had rich religious practices and customs. And yet in all their zeal for God, they missed something very, very important. And in the end, it resulted in their damnation. And Paul understood this really well. Paul, before he became a Christian, many of you know, was called Saul. And he was a prominent, let's use the word successful, Jew. I'll read you his resume from uh, the book of Philippians. You don't have to go there. We're actually going to flip around a good bit this morning. Philippians chapter 3, he kind of gives his Jewish resume before he met Christ. He says in uh, Philippians 3, starting at verse 4, second half of verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, which means he was like a pro. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, before Saul met Jesus and became Paul, he was like a superman in terms of the Israelite ways. He he was doing great, and he was more zealous than most. He actually was so zealous to squash all this Jesus stuff that he would go and persecute Christians. And drag them from their homes. And uh, the first Christian who was killed for being a Christian, Paul was there, Saul at the time, holding the people's coats so that they could throw rocks at him until he died. The guy's name was Stephen. But all that zeal, Paul realized immediately when confronted with Jesus, was uninformed. It was ignorant. See, zeal or passion or enthusiasm is like the gas pedal. 
But knowledge is like the steering wheel. So if you go out of here and get in your car and all you have is gas, hands in your pockets, you might be going really fast, but you're headed toward destruction. Zeal is only good. Passion, enthusiasm is only good if it's directed by knowledge. So for Paul, this ignorant zeal led to him persecuting the church. Israel's ignorant zeal, as we see here, led to many of of them to be damned. Paul wanted them to be saved. Um, So what about us? What about you and what about me? I think one thing that we're called to respond to here in this text is to examine our zeal and our enthusiasm and to get up underneath it and see what's driving it. What direction are we headed with it? Why? It's an invitation for us to re-examine our motivations. Now, real practically, I want to encourage you to get your Bibles out and really examine why you do what you do as a Christian. See, we're not Israel. We don't have quite the rich customs that they had, but we have a lot. We have a lot of traditions, and we have a lot of things that we do. Do we know why? Are we sure they're pointing in the right direction? It's a call to me as your pastor to do that. And I want to invite you to do that. But what he's talking about here is very, very specific. He's not talking about something vague. There's something very specific that the people of Israel missed. So let's read and see what it is. He says in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So what they missed, in spite of all their advantages, was one very, very important thing. Did you catch what it was? For being ignorant of the what? You can actually say it. It'll wake you up. The righteousness of God. It's hard to say that because you're not sure you'll be in unison with everyone else. It's okay. They missed the righteousness of God. That seems like a pretty big component of the whole equation, doesn't it? Yet somehow they were ignorant of it. In spite of all their dedication to learning the Old Testament, and they, there's something about the righteousness of God that evades us. And we miss it too. So the first thing that tripped them up was ignorant zeal. The second thing is what I'll call do-it-yourself righteousness. How can we miss the righteousness of God, and what does that mean for us? You guys remember early in the study of Romans? Of course you do. Romans chapter 1. I'll read a verse that we covered in Romans chapter 1. Famous verse. passage. Paul says in Romans 1, starting at verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Have you guys heard this? Well, I know you've heard it because we studied it, but you've heard this phrase a lot. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why is the gospel the power of God to salvation? In verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
See, the power that's in the gospel, part of it is that it reveals to us just how righteous God is. Because until we see that, we have this false notion that there's sort of a continuum of righteousness. Okay, and down on this end is like Hitler and just the scum of the earth people. And then over on this end is God and Jesus. And somewhere maybe like over here is Mother Teresa and maybe Billy Graham, you know, somewhere in there. And then most of us are like here in the middle. And if we can work our way up the continuum, if we can do better at the good stuff and stop doing so much of the bad stuff, when we get to heaven and we face God, he's going to say, you did pretty good. You weren't perfect, but you're no Hitler. So you're in. See, that's the way many of us view righteousness. But that's not how the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches there isn't a continuum. Some are more righteous than others. It's just two sides. It's either, yes, you are righteous, or no, you are not righteous. I know I'm flipping my stuff. You're following me. So you either are or you are not righteous. His standard has to be perfection because he is the ultimate perfection with a capital P. This is crucial to understand. Like we talked about last week, if you don't understand that, then you really, your Christianity doesn't need Jesus at all. It's just a self-improvement program. And you don't really need this bloody sacrifice on a cross. It doesn't make sense. But we understand through the gospel that we do need Jesus because he is the only one in the righteous category, which was over there, but now it's over here. Is Jesus is good because he is God, perfect, sinless, righteous. Everybody else, including Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, all the way down to Hitler is over here in the unrighteous category because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. If you don't believe me, I'll let Paul tell you. We studied this too in Romans chapter 3, one of the hardest passages in the Bible. Uh, Starting at verse 9. Um, about halfway through verse 9. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And then he has like a medley of quotations from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. It's like he even anticipates that people are going to be like, wait, what about such and such? He's like, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. As an example of his point that everybody is desperately sick in need of Jesus, he talks about our words, how we use our words. Just look at how people talk, and you can see that we desperately need help. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There is no one righteous but Jesus. And the gospel reveals this. And that's where the power is. Because until that is revealed to you, you are stuck on this endless treadmill of trying to be good enough. And you never reach any destination because we can't. The fact is, many of the people of Israel, and I fear many of us, When I say us, I mean the church today, not just this local church, but the church. Know just enough about God 
and just enough about the Bible and just enough about righteousness to damn us. We know just enough to know some of the rules and it's just enough to damn us. It's enough to make us feel that we can justify ourselves. But when that day comes, which it will, when we are face-to-face with God, no one will try to justify themselves. I guarantee it. No one will say, you should accept me because I did pretty good. When you're standing face-to-face with the Holy One, no one is going to say that. And I'll give you two examples of why I believe that. First is from Isaiah chapter 6. I hear that some of you are trying to flip to all these passages. Good for you. Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah comes face to face with the Lord. Let's see, I'll just start at verse 1. This is when the prophet Isaiah, who wrote one of the most beautiful books of the Bible, uh, came face to face with God. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, this is Isaiah writing, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Can you envision, try to envision this? Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And then here's Isaiah's reaction. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His response isn't, wow, that's really cool. I'm going to tweet about this. His response is, the phrase I was about to use isn't appropriate for a sermon. I don't know where it came from in my mind. Well, his response is, I'm screwed. His response is, now I see plainly who I really am. Now I see plainly, I'm a Jew, I thought I had it together. Now I see plainly, I am filthy. Yeah, do you have, if you have had kids and you, they eat something, my my kids is always toast with honey on it, which is like the perfect food to plaster crumbs all over their face. Whoa. Whoa. And you wipe their face after they eat and you think they're clean and then you go out into daylight where they're going to see people and you realize, good gracious. That's sort of the effect that it's going to be when we stand face to face with God. We thought we had it pretty well together, but in the light of the Holy One, we are going to see the truth. We are desperately unclean. Side note, interestingly enough, I didn't think of this until I just read it. Isaiah refers to the lips too. Something about how we use our lips is probably what we'll feel most condemned for when we stand before God. Okay, one other example of this, because I I really like this other example. Uh, This one's in Luke chapter 5. I'll just start at verse 1 on this one too. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. 
On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, being Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners on the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, and here's the point, if you phased out, here's the point I want you to pay attention to. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Jesus, you're awesome. Look at all these fish. I was starving. Perfect timing. Is that what he said? No, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What a weird response. It's like all of a sudden Peter realized, this is the Holy One. This is, Jesus is God. And all of a sudden he's looking at himself. He's like, just get away from me. Depart from me, for I am sinful. No one is going to try to justify themselves when they stand before God. And if that's your game now, if that's what you think Christianity is about now, you're horribly mistaken. We cannot let ignorant zeal or do-it-yourself righteousness cause us to miss everything and to miss Jesus. So, in conclusion, I just want to point out the final verse of our primary text back in Romans. Yes, in conclusion. You heard me correctly. Ultimately, what they did is summed up here in in the last two verses. It says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Ultimately, these two problems, ignorant zeal and do-it-yourself righteousness, caused them to make the big mistake. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, let that phrase settle into your minds because it's sort of counterintuitive. What would you think it would mean to submit to God's righteousness? If you're like me, at first blush, you would think, well, that means to obey his righteous rules and to try really hard to be righteous. And that's what many of the Israelites thought. But that's not what it means. See, when Christ came, we realized that he had a a substitute righteousness for us all the while in Jesus Christ. Submitting to God's righteousness is more like submitting to a gift being given to you. And in many ways, that's harder. Especially if you're full of pride, as many of us are. Submitting to God's righteousness, basically, it's 
accepting the gift. Do any of you know really, really bad gift recipients? I know a couple. I have been one in the past. Um, I know one, one guy who, I'm not sure, he may have received a couple of gifts since I've known him that he actually visibly liked. But usually there's some problem with it. Just couldn't submit to a gift. And I know a woman who is equally difficult in a different way to receive gifts. Some of you know people like this. There are people who, if you try to give them a gift, it's like they're offended. I don't need that. I don't need your handouts. See, the right way to receive a gift is to respond in gratitude and then use it. Think if someone gave you a really, really nice car. I'm not a car guy, so I'm not going to embarrass myself with an attempt at an example. What's a really, really nice car? Maserati, Toyota Sienna. (laughs) Maserati, okay. Someone gives you this car. What's the right way to receive that gift? Man, thank you. I'm going to drive this thing constantly. I've got seven kids. I don't care. I'm going to pack all their car seats somehow into this thing. The wrong way would be to say, that's a nice car, I'm going to pay for it. It might take me 20 years, I'm going to work to pay that car off. Well, then it ceases to be a gift. You have failed to submit to it. And you'll never get to enjoy it. So at the heart of Christianity is submitting to a gift. It's the righteousness of God given to us through Jesus Christ. Let's be grateful. Let's receive it. Let's use it. Let's stop trying to earn it. Let's let the knowledge of Jesus guide our zeal and our enthusiasm and our passion. Get, be in here and be informed. Search this. When you have an issue, don't just go with your gut. Our guts are always wrong. Go with what the Bible says. And you can do that. Do you, anybody seen Courageous? <laughs> Another attempt at a movie reference. More people have seen that, though. Do you, have you, do you remember the scene where he's sitting at his, his uh, like breakfast table, and he's got his laptop out, and he's working really hard, searching through the Bible, everything he can find about being a good, godly father? Well, that to me is just a beautiful scene of simply what we ought to be doing. You know, you guys have issues, you guys have questions, problems. Before you move on it, just get in here. Just Google, what does the Bible say about, fill in the blank, write down all those Bible references, and go look them up, and then submit to what it says. It's, it's very accessible to you to do that. Submit to God's righteousness, which is the gift of Jesus Christ. One final, final word. Uh, Back in Philippians, we studied that book through a couple summers ago. Um, Paul uses the phrase, work out your salvation. And it can trip you up when you've been hearing all these sermons from me about how salvation is a gift. You can't get it by works. I think it's a beautiful idea what he means. He means you've been given salvation. 
you through Jesus have been given acceptance as sons and daughters of God. Now work that out into your life. Work that reality out into every crevice of your life. In terms of fear and anxiety, you have no need for that. Work out this salvation into those areas in your life. In terms of uh, interpersonal conflict, you have tools at, at your disposal to forgive and to speak gracefully and truthfully and to discard bitterness and to serve and to love and to be humble. Work out this thing into your life. Let's submit to God's righteousness together as a church. Deal? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray... Lord, I pray that you will forgive me for the many times and the many ways that I have been apathetic and have not even had zeal for you. Lord, please forgive me for the times and the ways in which when I have had enthusiasm and zeal for you, I've moved forward without knowledge. I've moved forward ignorantly and caused damage. I pray that you forgive me for my attempts to establish my own righteousness by doing really good, by being nice. And that's my prayer for all of us. Lord, please guide us in these things. If the Israelites could miss it, so can we. Please help us. Please help us to receive and submit to your righteousness in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.